Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. Your usual host, Katie Rich, is in prison right now for publishing a cache of government documents that were secret. Uh, and so I am your uh, fill-in host, Mike Hogan, digital director of Vanity Fair. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. You know, I mean, I'm, I, as, as you were just saying, Joanna, I'm filled with journalistic purpose right now. Um, and uh, my little joke at the beginning of the podcast is based on the fact that we all just watched the new trailer for The Post, Steven uh, Spielberg's movie about Ben Bradley and Kay Graham trying to figure out what they were going to do with the Pentagon Papers at the Washington Post. Yeah. One of the last unknowns of the year, movie-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I was asking Richard, I think, a couple weeks ago, like, if there were any anything lying in wait to spoil everything for the for our Oscar predictions. Richard, watching the trailer, I'm, let's judge it on the trailer alone. Richard, watching the trailer, do you feel like this is a serious spoiler, something that could mix everything up? Oh, big time. I mean, I think it's funny that we have been talking very authoritatively for a few months now about, you know, where things stand. And it's like, but none of us have seen the Steven Spielberg movie with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, nor have you know about have seen, yeah. about the press fighting right. like a really screwed exactly. up president who lies all the time. Right. Like, yeah. that's a, I think that's undeniably a contender. I mean, and it looks to be more sort of. Uh, rabble rousing than Bridge of Spies, which was kind of a colder, more interior film, but that still did very well in terms of Oscar nominations and a win for Mark Rylance. So, yeah, I think The Post is a heavy hitter. I don't think anyone has ever showed any signs of tiring of Meryl Streep performances where she, you know, puts on a little voice and, a, you know, sort of big hair or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that works well for her. So, um, she's in there. You know, and Mike, you were reacting to Tom Hanks as kind of, it's kind of like a little Boston-y accent, right, that he's doing? Well, he's doing this gravelly voice, yeah, yeah. I guess. I don't I, I don't actually know that I've ever listened to Ben Bradley speak, but I guess he probably talks like that. Um, yeah. You know, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it works for him sometimes when he tweaks his voice just a bit. I think he likes yeah. to do that because otherwise he has that, that just that very like straight down the middle, kind of like America's dad sort of, I think he likes to change that up a bit. Well, and I think those voices tend to work better in the movie than in the trailer, right? In the trailer, yeah. in two yeah. minutes, it's hard to like suspend disbelief. You're like, that's Tom Hanks. Like, I know how you talk. Right. But if you're in the movie, I think there's ways of making that work over the long haul. I wonder if Hanks is trying to match Jason Robards. He's like, well, this is how Jason Robards is Brent Bradley in all the presence of men sounds so i'll do this no i mean it must you're right it must be based on actual ben bradley who i have also never heard speak um the other mystery that we don't know since none of us have seen the film is how many of these faces in the trailer are potentials to mix up the supporting acting category we don't know if bradley cooper has some big you know rachel mcadams in spotlight moment that will get him in there or something like that you mean uh bradley whitford oh bradley whitford sorry. yeah yes. I, I was like looking at the cast list, I was like bradley cooper's in this yeah, yeah you, didn't, you didn't recognize him <laughs> under that wig with the glasses he's in yeah. there no. but like just going through this cast obviously streep and hanks sarah paulson bob odenkirk tracy letts Br- bradley whitford bruce greenwood allison brie carrie coon david cross jesse plemons michael stuhlbarg zach woods i mean it's crazy it's almost um, like people uh will pick up the phone when steven spielberg calls them yeah isn't that funny crazy <laughs> idea 
right. Well, when we you had... want to be in a movie with uh, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep directed by Spielberg? No, yeah. <laughs> no. Thanks. I think I'm busy that weekend. Yeah. Um, well, when we had Carrie Coon in uh, for the podcast a couple months ago, um, you know, I briefly mentioned or or asked about this movie, and she gave me the impression that hers has a pretty small part. Like, I think she just did a couple days on it, but um, but yeah, I think uh, that Spielberg Joanna... can have somebody like Carrie Coon. She just walks in, yeah. hands somebody, Boom. you know, some documents, and walks out. That's yeah, it. That's, that's people that's are willing all. to do it. Yeah, <laughs> but but judging from the trailer, which you know doesn't always it's aren't always honest it does look like whitford has a, a more substantial supporting role yeah than some others which could and, be interesting. and odenkirk seemingly yeah mm-hmm. and right. odenkirk you know has been uh quickly rising in esteem even though he's had a long career but re- only recently with better call saul and emmy nominations he's now yeah. this like serious actor after years of of kind of out, out there alternative comedy yeah so people seem to be rooting for him in a, in sort of a Almost in like in a Brian Cranston way, which would I make was, sense. Yeah. yeah, I was yeah. about to say it might be like the Cranston thing where we're used to seeing Odenkirk now as an Emmy nominee staple, sort of every year he's nominated for for Saul, and so yeah, it might be one of those not not to not to malign whatever potentially great performance he and his like elaborate eyebrows in this movie are about to to give us, but it might be one of those rubber stamp things where you just think of Odenkirk as someone you award or at least nominate, right. So you mentioned Spotlight. Um, yeah, it's a Spotlight prequel. Was, 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 it, yeah. it is very Spotlighty. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if, uh, do you think Spielberg would, would look at a film like Spotlight and be like, oh, they did a lot of stuff right here. I'm going to sort of, you know, use that as inspiration. Well, I mean, that movie, Spotlight, what worked so well for that was how... Um, how kind of unadorned it was. It's yes. such a simple movie. It just tells a story and 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 investigates yeah. a, something. And 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 you know there are good performances in it, but nothing is very flashy. You know. And again, this is just a trailer with its soaring music and everything. But this seems to be a much bigger sort of more uh, emotive affair. You know, you have Sarah Paulson saying, you know, to risk her wealth and all this. Like, I think that's pretty brave. There was never there was not a lot of telegraphing like that in Spotlight. So right. But yes, I it's think sort in, of like Spotlight meets the darkest hour. Yes, exactly. That's a, I think a good way of putting. It. And 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 so yeah, Dunkirk would be the spotlight there. You know, the, the kind of more efficient whatever, and then darkest hour is the more dramatic, yeah. right? I well, and I think Tom McCarthy was was inspired by working on The Wire. You know, working yeah. for David Simon that that incredibly realistic, like gritty, yeah. no tricks. Um, and it works so beautifully in Spotlight, but you could also imagine it going horribly wrong and making a really boring movie. But Spielberg, yeah. even if Spielberg's trying to be more that way, it's still going to be Spielbergian, right? You're still going to like, he can't, he's not going to like not yeah. pull your, press your buttons. Exactly. As as Mike said, um, you know, the, the moment in the trailer, I think that you most feel this as a period piece that's a modern parable is when Tom Hanks says, you know, they can't be allowed to lie to us like this again or whatever. And all of us sort of sink a little lower in our seats. Um, but, you know, I, I'm wondering if, as we discussed last year, if Moonlight, if the win for Moonlight was not only awarding a great uh, film, but a referendum of sorts or an answer of sorts to our current administration, um, this, in a way that Spotlight wasn't, feels more deeply connected to that. And also, you know, there, I have questions about the difference in campaign styles. You guys know so much more about this than I do, but, you know, Tom McCarthy, for all his unassuming ways, was out there campaigning for Spotlight at Toronto at the Mill Valley Film Festival. Like, he was 
that that movie was heavily campaigned. Um, does a Spielberg movie need to be campaigned, or does it just sort of exist, you know, in its own star-studded glory? I don't well, know. well, Tom, Tom McCarthy did like the Rick Santorum in Iowa uh, campaign where he shook literally every single person's hand right. and was like, right. I, and and was like incredibly nice, you know, yeah. um, himself and his wife too. They both they both just did it personally because that's what they had to do. And and and, he, and Michael Keaton actually did a ton of work on that movie as well um but uh but i don't i doubt that spielberg's going to do that level of retail politicking but spielberg will have an incredibly effective um you know machine that knows what it's doing to 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 spell out the message i mean they're clearly it's it's it couldn't be more obvious what the message here is which is this movie is a middle finger to trump uh, mm-hmm. because our press is really important and presidents who lie deserve to um, be impeached and resign. Right. 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 I mean, it's yeah. like not yeah. that complicated. Yeah, exactly. And a couple things about that. Like, well, well one, we, sh- we should mention that speaking of Spotlight, that the, the paper was, or the post rather, was co-written by Josh Singer, who won an Academy Award for co-writing Spotlight. So there is a direct connection. Uh, there you there. go. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's interesting. And, and I'm sure that's intentional, right? It's oh, kind of like, this sure. is a spotlighty movie. Let's get somebody right. in here. Right. Who, because, because getting the details of journalism right or any field, uh, but especially journalism when when you've got a lot of people from of the press who are going to come in and watch this thing and help sort of craft the narrative yeah. around it, you know, not help, but like they're going to be responsible for partly crafting the narrative. Right. You got to get it right. You know, you can't yeah. make a like a movie that just takes insane liberties with what it's like to be in a newsroom. No, you exactly. And I think that especially in his later career, I think Spielberg has been focused on that. I mean, you look, you look at, you know, you look at Bridge of Spies, for example. And yes, there are some sort of like in, indulgences here and there because less was known about that you know the, the kind of day-to-day of that kind of whole affair but like there it, it's a process movie that folk that does kind of like honor the process and i think that this will probably do the same and i want to say one more thing about the trump thing and i apologize to the trump supporters who listen to the uh, podcast like, like don't give in to their no i mean <laughs> i don't i'm not, I'm not I'm apologize but like look you know it's not you you can listen to this podcast and like movies and have whatever political opinions you like but last night Interestingly, Democrats won big yeah. with a pretty straightforward, like, Trump sucks message. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people who don't usually vote in those elections who came out. And so their energy is there in the country. Like, people were kind of questioning, like, are, is this going to turn into action and is turning into action? So, I, you know, frankly, I think that will probably translate in the academy as well. I think everyone in the academy votes. Right. But but the passion is really high. People really, really, really want to make a statement. And that will help this movie a lot. A question I have before we uh, roll on to some of the more unusual, maybe, Oscar nominees that we're considering. Because this, this, to me, seems like a straight-down-the-middle classic Oscar movie, right? Uh, from Judging from the trailer. And, um, you know, my question is, we've been talking a lot about the new, the new class at the Academy and how maybe the, the, the films that are going to get nominated or awarded are not going to be these kinds of films anymore. Maybe more of a Moonlight and less of a Dunkirk or something like that. Um, even though we all still think Dunkirk will probably win Best Picture. So my question is, do you think that that anti-Trump uh, coded, not very heavily coded message uh, is enough to make this sort of a hit with with the potential new class? Or should we be looking at these smaller films that we've been considering all along? Well, it's interesting. And I had to write something recently about kind of just like gaming out the whole Best Picture race in sort of essay format. And um, 
something that I was kind of wondering about myself was like whether we go for kind of a protest or what we the whether the academy goes for sort of a protest movie or if they go for something that's more comforting like Shape of Water or Call Me by Your Name or something in the middle like Three Billboards because that's sort of both emotional but also kind of a, has a righteous anger to it you know like so I don't know but I think that the the post definitely seems a solid thing on 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 the if if people want to go if they want to speak out against the government, like that's, I mean, you, I don't think you could do have a better outlet for it than, than that. Well, and this right? isn't a very sophisticated analysis, but I think it depends honestly on how good the movie is, you well, know, because, what, because Spielberg <laughs> is that. Yes. Like, if, like Spielberg is capable of doing a B plus movie and he's capable of doing an A plus movie. Uh-huh. And if it's B plus there, yeah. you know, it, 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 I think there are a lot of younger people who are like, we're not falling for all the old tricks. Like right. if you deliver, great. If you don't deliver, like we can see through this thing, and, and and so I think that that makes it interesting. Whereas maybe ten years ago, there might have just been like just genuflect, right? But I think also, you know, looking back to Bridge of Spies, that was a movie that for some people was a plus, but not for everybody. You know, I walked out of that kind of like eh, and it still you know made an impact to the Academy. So I guess it's if if it's the right people. Are, yeah. are fans of it but it didn't win i mean no no it didn't. in other words i yeah. think it, this was a very likely nominee yeah but um, winning wise yeah 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 i feel like there's no way meryl streep does not get nominated here but um not having seen the film yet what you is... think meryl streep will be nominated <laughs> all right um, <laughs> would that make it an even 20 well, i think yeah. it might actually yeah. but but you know there's you know you see her walking like she doesn't even have to say anything you see her walk in the room in that trailer you're like okay nominated for that i see how that is and putting up with the microaggression or not even microaggression just the flat out aggression right to her just face right about, a woman can't run a newspaper <laughs> <laughs> a lot of men screaming in her face and her just being her steely resolve but uh-huh. um but Frances McDormand's like sort of wilder, more more uh, you know unrestrained anger in Three Billboards. I don't know. That'll be that'll be a very interesting race for me uh, personally. Too. Yeah, and 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 it's curious to think about who she might knock out. But but also I was looking at it. You know, um, in terms of studio, this is a Fox movie. Uh, they also um, you know they have Fox Searchlight, which has Shape of Water and Three Billboards. So they're they're they've got a heavy slate over there. I mean, I'm sure those companies you know work some, somewhat separately from each other. But you know this. This is not the Fox's only December kind of prestige release because they also have the Hugh Jackman Circus Musical, The Greatest Showman, so which is going to come and blow everyone out of the water. I'm convinced. Well, and by the way, thank you for setting up this segue because by the time Oscars roll around, Fox might be owned by Disney. Yeah, and that gives us a great opportunity to talk about um, this Disney kind of snafu publicity fail yeah. uh in the past week so i don't know richard can you you're you're a critic can you uh fill us in on what happened here yeah. well as one of the most important people in society yes I, i'm happy to uh <laughs> <laughs> um no so what happened was that i, f- I think it, th- these articles were actually a few months ago there was a there was a two-piece investigative thing from th- done by the los angeles times where they were looking into disney the company's ties with anaheim the city and kind of some maybe shady financial dealings I think I think was kind of the tenor of it. Um, Anaheim is where Disneyland is for those um, who don't know. But anyway, so in kind of in a retaliation, they Disney blacked out critics from seeing you know things like Thor or any Disney release. So I uh, you know presumably Coco, which is coming up. Uh, there was a Pixar film, and yeah, and and it was, and the LA Times published something, I believe, late last week, saying here's why there isn't a review of Thor. You know, we're, we're you won't see anything. We're not, you know, for, about Disney basically until they lift this this blackout ban, and so people in protest, including critics groups like the New York Film Critics Circle, and the National 
National Society of Film Critics, I believe, the Boston Film Critics, they all kind of in protest, in in solidarity, said, well, we're not going to cover any Disney film. We're not going to consider them for year-end awards, any Disney film, until yeah. this is lifted. And then... And then yeah. you had some creators chiming in, David Simon, second yeah. reference to this show, uh, Ava DuVernay. Yeah. Who's, being, a, who's a Disney director. Yeah, she's yeah. got Wrinkle in Time with them. And and I think uh, it's interesting because because, you know, you don't see Disney make too many missteps. And I think I think everyone is adjusting to this new world, and Disney is used to used to having an enormous amount of sway, right? Because you think about not letting critics into their movies is, you know, low on the list of retaliations. Frankly, I think from Disney's perspective, because high on the list is cutting all their advertising to your paper, you know, and that's what that's really where they have an enormous amount of power. Because um, it's tough for for journalists to to say no, really. It's I mean that's the subject of the post, right? I mean you know yeah. you're it's not that you're going to go to jail, but it's like hey, we're going to lose you know fifteen million dollars worth of advertising in the or next year or whatever that number might be. I'm yeah, I mean it's an existential air, kind of, threat. but like yeah. nowadays that's a big deal. Yeah, and so I think that they really they have an incredibly strong hand and a lot of soft power. Uh, but they way overplayed their hand in this case, and 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 in a, in a way that was really clumsy and and bad. Yeah. And um, I, I think that um, bringing up that Fox story as you did to kick us off, Mike, which is, you know, very early report from I believe CNN that um or CNBC that um Fox and Disney are in you know early talks to potentially have Disney buy Fox, which you know the immediately reaction from. The nerds is like, oh, now X-Men could be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then the reaction <laughs> from some other people are like, I mean, that was me. But also me was, no, Disney can't own everything because they already own Marvel and Lucasfilm and Pixar, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, fear of monopoly. So those two stories together, which is Disney strong arming the press and Disney potentially eventually making all the movies, um, I think really exacerbated what was already a, a bad sort of look for Disney. And, um, you know, Katie Rich, uh, our, our dear absent Katie Rich. Free Katie. Out- <laughs> <laughs> She's actually in Free Disney Katie. jail, guys. That was the real yeah. truth. Yeah. But she pointed out to me that in David, uh, David Mitchell's book, Cloud Atlas, in the future section of Cloud Atlas, all the movies are called Disney's and uh, all the movie theaters are called like Disneyariums or something like that. So like, this is a real fear, you know, and I think the Simpsons also did that joke, which they did everything. But like, this has been a real fear that Disney will become the only company at some point. And uh, this Fox News story was just sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a big part of that. Yeah. And I th- I think like, and and that, that someone in the company felt emboldened enough you know, perhaps by, inspired by government action or whatever, to be like to to kind of to use that power and to to block you know LA Times out of things like that's a little troubling. And I think I also read some things about how the head of Disney, Bob Iger, uh, supposedly rumor is he has political ambitions for when he's done with Disney. And so, what kind of mindset are we talking about here? You know, there was just it 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 all of a sudden this kind of seemingly petty minor thing sort of swirled into this much bigger story about you know sort of existential threats to journalism if i had to guess i i don't know um if i had to guess i would say that this was not a bob Iger decision right and it was a bob Iger cleanup job that he was probably incredibly annoying to him right that this yeah. is like hand-to-hand combat type stuff that happens with journalists and publicists like we've all sort of been there on the receiving end of like 
ranging from like I can't believe how horrible that story was like never ask me for anything again to you know more often sort of like hmm yeah. could, next time could we talk because we really right. didn't feel that this was um and 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 I doubt that Iger had anything to do with it and except with having to clean it up but it's a bad it's just a bad look but I think it's also what what you know, on the one hand, yeah, like, thanks to Trump, people are emboldened to beat up on the press and maybe think like, screw these guys, we don't need them. We can, like, the Disney can reach the audience directly in a way they didn't used to be able to. So they don't need the LA Times as much. But on the other hand, the LA Times uh, has the ability and, and, and the community of critics has the ability to kind of organize quickly and get a word out yeah. in a way they didn't before. So we're just in this new crazy terrain. Basically, everything's gone completely haywire. <laughs> yeah, essentially. It's new, yeah, but it's it, the haywire era. But it, but it was nice, you know. Even if it was a just a sort of small gesture or whatever, it was nice that some there was some banding together, you know. And I and I think that like and and who knows what the actual what the what the deci- what the crux point of the decision was to like undo the the band. Maybe it was the critics groups or who who knows what it was. But like, it's great that sorry, I don't misunderstand me. I just mean yeah, it's it's like all these these technological advances they open up opportunities for abuses and they also open up interesting opportunities mm-hmm. to, for re- redressing them, you know? Yeah, and that was totally. what was cool about it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, even though, uh, so the, f- funnily enough, the, the the news that they had lifted the ban it appeared in the New York Times, not the Los Angeles Times, and Disney did a kind of funny little spin thing where they were like, we came to, you know, the, the new ownership of the LA Times, like, satisfied or what you know they, they use some language where it basically yeah. looked like a win for them which is why which is why they're disney i mean right. and it was so weird because they were like we've spoken to new owners as if like someone new had come in since the ban which is not the case i mean it was the, that use of new is very weird and sinister to me well they do have new and uh, didn't they recently fire their editor there may be a new editorial team since but not since the ban no but no like, but since the story yeah. right. i, th- oh, I yeah, think that yeah. people at tronk honestly didn't know what the problem even was like i think they were just like what 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 didn't you like about the story like right. you know right so it was it was not really handled in the world they got too close way. to something <laughs> it's also so weird to punish the like culture desk for something the business desk wrote you know what i mean there's just such a separation there that or there should be i don't know anyway. a, a rare clumsy error from from a company that really does a lot of things very cleanly yeah. but i have to say i'm just so relieved that i can see star wars now I was really worried I was going to have to skip Star Wars. (laughs) So speaking of of movies that we would like to see in the Best Picture race, Lady Bird came out Mm -hmm. last weekend and had the highest per theater average of any movie this year. Something like ninety nine thousand dollars per theater. It was it was good. Yeah, I have personally seen approximately six billion ads in Facebook for Lady Bird. So <laughs> I think A twenty four is doing a really good job. I mean, they don't. If only they knew, I'd seen it already. Um, but they're clearly like targeting their target audience with using the same tactics the Russians used to uh, flip the election. So <laughs> and that's apparently very effective. So good on them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I love that this movie is succeeding, and I love that it has traction. So what do we think? Is Lady Bird a real a real contender? Is Saoirse going to get nominated? Is uh, is um, uh, Laurie Metcalf? Laurie I think, Metcalf certainly have will. any chance against uh, against? Um, come on, help me out here. Uh, Allison Janney about against Allison Janney from Itanya. What? Let's talk <sighs> Lady Bird. Yeah, I mean, I I think that 
the the success at the you know the sort of specialty box office as they call it you know the sort of um smaller release art house stuff uh indicates to me that like because this isn't always the case it's sometimes a movie is big at festivals and critics love it and everyone's crowing about it and then it comes out and no one cares yeah but this that's is often a, that often happens. that's often you know and and this is a case of like well that seems that this one is gonna might might hit and resonate in a way that um uh, not always, but I think the Academy oftentimes takes notice of, you know, they like when a movie's successful. It helps. Yeah. ABC likes it because it helps the ratings for the for the award show, supposedly. So, yeah, I think that that's really promising for the movie. I think it was already kind of a sure thing for a lot of nominations, but I think now we can kind of bet on it and put it in the bank. I think, yeah, and I, I agree with Richard, the specialty box office, the Perth, I mean, it's hilarious when you get into these box office stats and you start to really parse them and you're like, it's the top grossing film ever for a woman that opened between May, you know, like set in Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. But I do think the per theater average uh, stat is interesting because, you know, it had a super, Lady Bird had a super limited release. It's only, it was only in four theaters in New York and LA. And what it means, and it did very well, not just per theater, but just sort of overall for the weekend and and what that means is it's taking a temperature of these two cities that have the most academy voters, you know, per capita than any other city in the, in the country. And so um, the interest is super high. As Richard said, this isn't just like a festival favorite that's going to die in the vine. Like, people are really into seeing this movie. And the reaction seems to be it's it, I, I think Lady Bird, you know, your mileage may vary on on whether it's one of the best movies of the year or what have you. But what I think the magic that Lady Bird has is the same thing I think that Moonlight had, which is it's an incredibly personal autobiographical story that is so true that everyone feels like it's about them, even when it's not, you know what yes. I mean? There's, there's yes. um, Moonlight, uh, you know, I really have so little in common with the protagonist of Moonlight, but I felt that emotionally felt that movie so strongly. I have so much more in common with the protagonist of Lady Bird, um, but I talked to people who don't, and they felt the same way I did. So I just really feel like Greta Gerwig in making this film has has captured something so, so unique in filmmaking which is just an honest true experience and emotion yeah i i agree with that because i i mean i'm a i was a boy you know 10 to 15 years earlier in new jersey but it, i was just like you know weeping it was like my relationship with my mom it was it was there and you know? mike your musical theater days let's let's be, I, let's be honest <laughs> let's be honest i was you know, <laughs> a little more successful actually than lady bird well huh. <laughs> um yeah i mean my, my sister uh lives out in la and she saw it for work she works for film independent which does the spirit awards um and uh she texted me and said it's the best depiction of female adolescence I've ever seen. And she's about, which is a little older than Gerwig, but like, and so it's just like, you know, I, and I keep seeing tweets like that and, and getting texts like that, but that, the movie is really sticking with people and, yeah. and connecting, yeah. which, you know, at a time now when a lot of people feel sort of scared and confused and to have something kind of just come out of all that chaos and clarify something or, or make you nostalgic for something. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Now, whereas I'm sorry, I know we said we weren't going to talk about calling, call me by your name, but, I will say, I found it hard to relate to Call Me By Your Name. I mm -hmm. thought it was beautiful. I thought the performances were great, but I wasn't invested in the story. I didn't really see myself in that 
mm-hmm. that kid and that romance in the way that I saw myself, oddly, in you know, in Search of Ronan. So I don't, I don't know. It's just it's interesting. This thing this thing just feels like it is really universally relatable in a, in a rare rare way. Yeah. Well, it has that kind of. I mean, Call Me by Your Name. I think is is a bit of a it's a bit of an artier movie. It's maybe you know it's a little bit less accessible. Yeah. Uh, it's set in a world that you know very few have. <laughs> lived in i mean right. uh, you know beautiful summers in italy but uh i guess italians have lived there but um <laughs> in the summer but um uh but you know but but ladybird has the the kind of the warmth the appeal of something like juno or something like little miss sunshine yeah, you know um and not i mean you know say what you will about those other two movies and that's not to denigrate ladybird at all but like it just you know once in a while one of those kind of indie hits will just kind of skip skip over that sort of difficult line and and become well, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, make $200 million at the box office, but yeah. like, I think it'll do well. And I think people are really going to remember yeah. it. And I think it'll be indelible whether or not it wins awards or not. It will get nominated for them, though. And and it'd be interesting to see if Greta Gerwig can become the fifth uh, woman to be nominated for Best Director. Yeah. I feel like she's going to, okay, I don't want to get my hopes dashed, but I feel like she's definitely going to get nominated. And I think there's some crazy chance she might even win for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier, which is the idea of a win being a referendum on the current administration. Administration. And if Moonlight was a referendum on the current administration, if, if the paper is just like a woman director winning would also fit that bill. And like, you well, know, not, well, not speaking, that that's, yeah, yeah, not only the administration, but a referendum on the Harvey Weinstein, you right. know, sexual yes. abuse scandal. Like, hey, let's let's give women a chance, you know, and see if they can do better than these like sleazebag guys have been doing. Right. And 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 that's and like, you know, that's not to say that if Greta Gerwig wins, that would be the only reason why I could just no. see that being a great push for her. I think she did an amazing job with this film writing and directing it. Just a really, really incredible job. I've always liked her as a performer, but this is just like a serious step up um, creatively for her. And I am I'm really excited to see what happens. Well, because, you know, there I mean, she had co-directed a movie a while ago, but like this is really her first, you know, this is her first solo outing as a director. And, yeah. and, and I think when actors look there there the hollywood history is littered with like movies that were directed by actors that should not have been directed by those actors you yeah. know and and when one comes along like like jordan peele earlier this year mm-hmm. uh who just is like no i i got this like i i'm good at it like <laughs> yeah. i have it figured out i've been paying attention like here's you know here's the kind of the fruits of that of all that observing and everything it's really exciting you know yeah. it it's a nice you know it, it doesn't happen often and um when it does i think hollywood in particular it, it it they really root for that kind of narrative And then you also have, uh, you know, this is something that I think Mike brought up during the Emmys, where you have these um, people in um, non-acting categories who are then celebrities, right? So, like, you would have a Jordan Peele or a Greta Gerwig, you know, who are not the, you know, George Clooney or whatever, but they are familiar faces. And um, I think Mike was saying, you know, when you have, like, someone like Donald Glover or Aziz Ansari win for writing or directing in TV, that puts a celebrity face on a non-celebrity category and makes that sort of more appealing in some way to audiences. I don't know. That's that's just a, another possibility for a push there. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, and, and people like that. It, it, it adds fun to a narrative that or a category that isn't always, you know. Yeah, you definitely have a leg up. Well, I don't know. It's interesting because you have a leg up in, in that everyone knows who you are mm. and you're kind of cooler. Uh, you have you may run into a kind of like, does this person really have the chops? And exactly. and, and even in I mean, it's interesting because as far as I know, 
the nominations are still done just by director. So it, it, if anything, it probably harms you in the nomination stage. It, that's that's actually where true. they're oh, like this yeah. carpet bagging actor, yeah. like go back to you know. Right. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting. I think uh, anyway. I really would love to see Greta Gerwig in there. I think this is just this movie just like stole my heart. Oh, well, you do, well, you do hope. Speaking of that director's branch, you do hope that you know it's an older crowd. It's very male. You know, mm-hmm. you you hope that 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 the the the, the relatability you saw in it, Mike carries forward yeah. to people older and you know whatever, uh, maybe a little bit more removed from it because. But at you least know. they can relate to Tracy Letts. There you go. There's I mean, something. Just, there's something for keep everyone. Keep going, crazy yeah. kid. <laughs> yeah, That's the Michael Stolberg, oh Tracy Letts. They should have their own like sitcom. <laughs> exactly. to, like <laughs> my two dads. Yeah. Well, the next part of this uh, episode is going to be an interview. Uh, Richard, can you tell us about it? Yeah, a brief interview I did with Martin McDonough, who wrote and directed Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and you know, it, which is a movie that's coming out, I believe, next week, and is you know, top of a lot of people's Oscar predictions. But it's also a movie that has a lot to say aside from awards narrative. Um, it's a very timely film about you know a woman, Frances McDormand, who's very angry about something has a has a really just cause so i talked to mcdonough about you know he's an irish guy who lives in london about telling an american story which he's done before but this one particularly feels american um and we talked a little bit about his theater time his theater career and um yeah just a a little chat but i think it's interesting and it was good to check in on someone as he is about to embark on a lot of awards you know carpets and dinners and lunches and all that awesome okay here's that interview So I'm here with Martin McDonough, the writer and director of Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Hi. Uh, which, hello, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In the midst of a busy day. Now, this movie uh, has already, it's not even out in the States yet, but it has already gotten a lot of buzz because it was such a big thing in Toronto with winning the Girls People's Choice Award. Did that, was that take you by surprise? or um, It did, it did actually, because we'd just been to Venice uh, about a week before that and uh, and it went well there and, and we got like the screenplay prize there. But um, in Toronto, just sitting in the auditorium with, with just real people watching it, uh, just it kind of went crazy. They they got all the laughs and they were gasping at, at the plot twists and stuff. Um, and then, but we still, you know, there were a lot of great films in, in Toronto this year. So it was like a massive surprise the next morning when someone woke me up hungover with the phone call that, uh, right. that we'd won. Cause, yeah. cause and I, I think I kind of knew that it was, uh, sort of that prize is sort of an Oscar kind of launch pad kind of thing, but not to the degree that it's, it's turned out to be since like everyone has spoken to is, is brings that up and, and, and gives me the figures on, um, right. on, past winners so um so it's cool it's it's kind of nice to be talked about in that breath than not yeah and i think that also that particular prize i mean obviously the venice thing is a big deal and but that's coming from a sort of film cognoscenti you know this is more of a sort of populist kind of award and i think that that to me anyway speaks to the spirit of the film i think it i mean it's it's both a piece of art but it's also there's a real sort of i don't know uh primal sort of humanity to it and i think that yeah. that's a nice mix um, yeah so I, I was surprised that yeah. that it's uh because you know it, it starts off from a sort of dark place and, a, and and it's a very dark comedy um but but i was surprised that so many people uh go for it in such a that it's had such a popular sort of reaction yeah. not just the art house one um and i think part of that is because of Frances mcdormand you know she's so 
outrageously strong in it uh, that it kind of cuts through a lot of the darkness and you just kind of want to see what crazy stuff she does from scene to scene. And yeah. there's something joyful about that. And I think that's, it seems to be why audiences are going for it. Now, I think that, you know, in, in, in America, certainly, um, there is a lot of anger going on in the country right now. Yeah. And um, you're not an American, but you have your past few projects, Behanding in Spokane and Seven Psychopaths have been set in the United States. And yeah. I'm curious if, if, are you, with Three Billboards, are you trying to locate a particular American anger? Or do you think it's like a bigger global sort of um, feeling to you? I think it's probably a bit bigger and, and, and more global. Weirdly, this, the script was written about eight years ago, so it's not like a direct response to, you know, the election or, or even to what what has been happening in Missouri in the last couple of years. Um, but uh, but I think those those feelings of anger and, and uh, uncertainty are are sort of worldwide right now. Um, but I think because the film uh, starts off from a place of rage and anger but doesn't stay there, it, it, it kind of moves to a place of, of a bit more humanity and a bit more hope. I feel like that's why, uh, that's why it's kind of having some kind of resonance with audiences. Um, and it's better to be putting something out that's about hope right now than it is about uh, putting out something yeah. with anger. I, I hate to say, where do you get your ideas? But where did this particular... Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very uh, complex and... and um, it, it feels like a particular kind of story. Where did it start with you? What was the germ of it? Um, with two things. I kind of The last two films I made were quite male-centric ones, mm -hmm. um, but my early plays weren't really that, that way. I used to have, uh, I used to write strong parts for women, uh, so I wanted to get back to that a little bit. And um, But I actually saw something uh, uh, on a couple of billboards about 17 years ago on a bus through, through the States that kind of... Uh, was very similar to what we see on, on our billboards in this story. They, they were about a crime and they were uh, calling the police to account for their lack of uh, uh, finding a solution to it. Um, and once I kind of brought those two things together and I decided that that idea was, was put up there by uh, a mother, uh, everything kind of fell into place really um, because it meant the person who put that up there was obviously angry and obviously in pain, but uh, but also quite brave as well. Um, and then you know Francis's character kind of almost popped out fully formed from that moment. Yeah. So obviously um, Ireland and the UK, where, where you're based now, um, have their own issues surrounding race and ethnicity and all that. But I think that um, this this piece on three billboards and in your play Behanding in Spokane with Anthony Mackie's character, like there. Uh, there has been grappling with a particular kind of American race relation or, or sort of lack thereof, maybe. Mm. Um, how is that? How do you kind of calibrate that? Does, is it, or how, how do you do that? Do you enter it cautiously, trying to make sure you don't offend, or are you just more sort of coming from a gut place that? Um, yeah, you, you, you enter that cautiously, but you enter uh, most aspects of storytelling. Cautiously to a degree, um, but I think uh, certainly if you if you feel like your moral moral compass is in the right place and your heart is in the right place, um, you 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 kind of jump in and um, and and be as brave as you can. Um, but I think um, it's it's mostly about um, you know 
being truthful to the characters you, you, you're coming up with and uh, having, again, uh, making sure there's humanity about them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so between um, Missouri, Spokane, I mean, you seem pretty well traveled around this country. Is that true? Or if you... um, I still haven't been to Spokane. Yeah. Um, but uh, I hear it's wonderful. Um, I, uh, I've, I've been all around Missouri now. And, uh, but all over the states, I love, uh, I love just, small town America and, and big town America and I love the landscape and I love traveling so I, I, I a lot of this movie was like written, written eight years ago while I'm on buses and on trains uh, uh, through through the country um, and I think it's the best thing for a writer to do is just to to, to listen to people and, and, and to, to travel um, and uh, seems to be seems to be working with this one do you so you're approaching things more f- first as a writer and then as a director second is that is that fair or is that all kind of all at the same time it pretty much yeah it's still like the writing is 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 the first thing but this i think this is the first time i've felt like very comfortable being a director it's the first time i've come out the other side and felt like uh it wasn't just a writer controlling or protecting the script it it felt properly directed not yeah. not that you know i wasn't happy with the first two but this felt the most comfortable to make yeah i mean i think it i mean i i, I love uh in bruges and and uh, seven psychopaths but this feels um like kind of different kind of a bigger movie a more kind of expansive in its ideas and it's it seems at. to be that way yeah. yeah yeah i don't know how that happened but it, it, it seems <laughs> yeah. to be that way so I read something, um, and f- forgive me if I'm misremembering it, but um, about you talking about doing theater versus doing film, and then you kind of prefer to do film these days. And I, you said something interesting in this interview that um, doing theater, it's hard to, to participate in making art that is going to cost people $100 to, to, to gain access to it or something like that. You know, And, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. We talk a lot on this podcast about you know, the, the struggles that distributors are having or that between streaming and putting things in theaters, do you have any sort of economic thought about that, that, about that, or do you not trouble yourself with those kind of debates? I try not to get into those debates too much. Um, I'm, 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 I'm still questioning the whole streaming side of things. Um, and you know, I, I like, I like movies to come out in movie theaters. And the cool thing about this, like, especially in Toronto was like hearing, you know, sitting beside people laughing and having that communal experience. And I'd, I'd worry that we're going down a path that, that is going to lose that. Um, but the, the thing between, uh, theater and, and film, I kind of, I'm always going to toggle back and forth between the two, yeah. but, uh, the whole issue of ticket prices being too expensive. I don't know what we, we, do about that um yeah. it seems the uk has figured that out a little bit better than the us has there there yeah. are there are places now where uh yeah they, they've kind of broken down the whole um economic uh idea of it and just like like have a bunch of much much cheaper seats and then expensive ones that kind of subsidize subsidize the the inexpensive yeah. ones and it it makes the same amount of money so so that's the way to go it seems like yeah and and a lot of auteurs are are fincher and others are, are making their way into television mm-hmm. uh, is that something that interests you at all i mean that's a different kind of storytelling obviously yeah i'm way too lazy to ever get involved <laughs> in, in something that's going to take like five or seven years yeah. um and you have to go in and get up every day no i'm uh, much happier with 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 my working every four years right. <laughs> mode. Yeah. And now going back to, uh, you know, Venice and Toronto and people, you know, whispering in your ear about or yelling at you, I don't know about Oscars and all that stuff. 
Do you have any philosophy for dealing with that kind of award stuff? You're, you're not a stranger to the Oscars. You, you won an Academy Award for a short. You're nominated for In Bruges. Is that something you engage with, or is it just kind of you know icing on top if it happens? Um, it's, it's, you kind of are almost forced to engage a, a, a little bit. But I think the fact that I don't do this very often, I only do it like every four or five years, um, is that it, it, I don't feel jaded about any of that stuff. It's kind of fun and interesting. And, uh, but I particularly like that, you know, uh, the actors in the film are getting, starting to get that buzz, uh, about them. Um, and, and, you know, I love hanging out with them. So like the knowledge that we're going to spend two more months hanging out and, uh, winning or losing things. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of, uh, fun to look forward to, but it's mo mostly about, you know, I, I know their work in this is so good that it's, 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 I'd rather it be recognized than not. Yeah. It's such a carefully assembled cast, too. I mean, what, what was that process like? I mean, obviously, um, you've worked with Sam Rockwell before. Um, and for, it seems like McDormand was maybe sort of in mind when you were writing or. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. whole, that part was written for her. Actually, Sam's part was written for him, too. Um, and, but I'm kind of interested in building up this repertory company. Of yeah, actors. that was a very theater idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so Woody, I'd, I'd worked with on the last one, too. I knew him for like 10 years, but Peter Dinklage, I'd, I'd known from, from way back when. Um, and and John Hawkes I always wanted to work with so uh, but we've got about four or five of the other actors Abby Cornish I'd worked with before mm -hmm. Jelko Ivanek uh, I did a play with and he was in the first two films so um, it's 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 fun to kind of turn up at work every day and uh, and know everyone you know yeah maybe that's laziness too but uh, <laughs> but I like it no it's 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 curation I feel like it, it, okay. it people you know you, you, it's fun and I used to see repertory theater as a kid and in, in, in Boston and, and seeing these same actors but doing different things it, it sort of exactly. shows a, a different size of an actor exactly is, exactly yeah. uh, and I just think like Sam's part in this is so different to his part in the last one and that's true of Woody's character too so I'll uh, I'll be interested to see what Francis does in the uh, yeah. in the next one <laughs> have you been able to talk to I I mean, speaking about you know, winning a People's Choice Award, I mean, besides journalists and other filmmakers, have you been, been able to talk to anyone who's seen the film and, and he heard the reaction and has anything surprised you about what they've said? Um, well, I think I was surprised from the outset that it's, that it's, that it's, people are getting past the sadder aspects of it and, 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 and finding it so, so funny, um, and loving the performances. Um, but, but with anything, even though if you think it's, 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 good or well done there's usually um you know dissenting voices um i remember when in bruges came out first most of the earlier reviews were very poor and uh and and when you think something's good you, you kind of you kind of taken aback by that so uh, i prefer it this way <laughs> yeah yeah do you i mean do you i mean i don't want to spoil anything for our listeners and i won't but like do you think that I think for it's you know an audience to really take to it in the way that they have so far. I mean, it's not out yet again, but um, there has to be something maybe hopeful or at least redemptive or cathartic about it. I mean, do you did you intend that in the writing? I mean, like it, like it, it's, uh, it's not a down. It's not in the end. It's not really a downbeat piece. I don't. No, know. no, yeah. not, not at all. Even yeah. all the way through it. Um, but. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think films have to be hopeful and, 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 and up, but this one, uh, because it starts in a darker place, uh, it, it would have been, um, painful, I think, to, to stay there. And yeah. I think, but I was kind of surprised by how honestly sort of hopeful uh, the story becomes and how, 
how hopeful the characters become and yeah. the change that takes place in them. And that was there in the script, but I think it's, it's like the performances, you know, it's, it's Francis and Woody and, and Sam who, who pull us through, you know, uh, pull us out of the, the darkness of the story to something that's truly about hope. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's, been true of your other work something that's so disarming about something like in bruges where it is this kind of violent you know mobster hitman kind of story but mm. there's this real heart in it not not just at the end but kind of throughout and i think similarly with seven psychopaths and and a lot of your plays um how do you kind of navigate the balance between violence and and this humanity and do you ever see yourself making something that is just i mean you've done plays that are not violent but like Film wise, like I haven't. What? What? what, what, what well, no, wait, I didn't. Um, maybe Inishman, Inishman, maybe cripple, cripple. No, it is. He, oh, get, he right. gets his head beating it. Beating oh gosh, that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. but yeah. not in a bad way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the balance. Yeah, I, I guess I'm. I'm. I. I, I uh, am. My my first uh, port of call is is uh, being anti-violence in, mm-hmm. in 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 things, but but then being truthful about the violence if there is violence in these things so it's so it's a weird slightly weird dichotomy i suppose um but this one particularly doesn't feel as violent as some of the other things um but definitely i think its heart is in uh, a, a slightly softer yeah. place than maybe some of the others i mean the violence is in the past which is you know maybe it, really i mean there's a little bit in the in the film in the present tense but yeah but so maybe there's something there in terms of like maybe maybe um but maybe 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 the next one won't have any. Yeah. Maybe well, the next rom com won't uh, have right. You're a musical. There you <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. The th- go down combine the theater and everything. So, uh, you know, is there anything speaking of the future that you haven't tried before that you would be dying to, or is that kind of um, not how you work? No, I think I'll plow the same old trough and yeah. just see what. Uh, the, the good thing about this is that it has a lot of the same um, sensibility as some of the other stuff, but does feel like it, it's gone to a different place or, or, yeah. or certain aspects are heightened and, um, and, and the humanity of it is, is much more clearer. So, so I think maybe it's just about dis- distilling some of those ideas. Yeah. Sometimes you think, well, if, if, if I do something that's, that's a bit more, um, you know, simple or, or less heavy or, or, or more genre, it might be a way to go. But I kind of went that way with the last one and I'm, I'm kind of happier with this one. Yeah. So, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see what the future will bring, but I wouldn't want to do anything again the next time that's not as, as good as this or not as thoughtful even. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, we look forward to it. Uh, Mark McDonough, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks. And congrats on everything and good luck. Thank you. Even if it doesn't really all matter, it's just about hanging out with your friends. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Thanks, Martin. (laughs) Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you very much for listening. And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us find new listeners. You can find us all writing about award season at VanityFair.com and at Little Gold Men on Twitter. You can also follow us individually on Twitter. I'm Mike underscore Hogan. Richard. Rylaws. Joanna. I'm Joe Wrote This. Katie's at Katie Rich. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell. And thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the most unexpected reaction to Bad Mom's Christmas goes to Mike Hogan. This movie just like stole my heart. Oh.